0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: The medieval mystic Meister Eckhart once said, if the only prayer you said in life was thank you, that would be enough. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But there's more to gratitude than it seems.
0: From the Islamic side, there's been a lot of scholarship on gratitude as uh, related to patience, to perseverance, to a way of being in life that is always aware of what God has done for you, and that's the good and the bad. And again, I would stress, it's not necessarily about you know passive acceptance of all that befalls you. Gratitude demands actually that you, you strive for justice. It demands that you think about inequality and do something about, about all the social disparities that we face. But on the other hand, there's a sense also that as believers, ultimately, we are in the hands of God, that there is only so much we can control, and that what we can control, we have to do the morally right thing with that. And that takes patience, but it also takes courage.
1: Hello and welcome to Soul Search on RN. I'm Meredith Lake. Today, with Mona Siddiqui, Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh and one of Britain's most influential public intellectuals. Mona is currently leading a project on gratitude, and I'm thrilled she can join me via Skype from Scotland to talk about it. In recent months, I think we've seen some really interesting public displays of gratitude in the UK including a weekly Clap for Carers that sounds something like this.
0: The Clap for Carers was an initiative that was raised by someone who said, really, we should be applauding all those people in the front line, um, going out Thursday night at eight o'clock, everyone, everywhere who can, to show our appreciation. Now it's actually stopped, it stopped a few weeks ago. The NHS is both a complex issue here, the National Health Service, but also a much appreciated issue. For all its issues and contentions, it's one of the great institutions in the UK. So most people were very happy to, to come out and show appreciation, not everyone did. And I think at one point there seemed almost like a tyranny of clapping, that you had to clap. And people were judging others.
1: Why didn't you come out and clap? You had an experience of that yourself, I believe.
0: I did. And I wasn't somebody who was coming out clapping every Thursday night. And uh, I went out for a walk with my husband one day and forgot that it was eight o'clock on Thursday. And uh, some of the neighbours said, well, I hope you're clapping as you're walking. And that kind of, uh, you know, neighbours who I never clapped eyes on before. And I think that kind of thing really puts into question what is it that we're clapping for, who judges whom in these times, uh, what are our priorities. But also, the clapping was almost a veneer. You know, many of the NHS staff themselves said, oh, it's great that you're sharing appreciation. What we really want is better pay, better conditions, you know, more investment. That clapping is a kind of symbol, and it doesn't take away from people who genuinely feel affection for the National Health Service, which most of us do. But it was, you know, it, it, was, it was hiding what the real issues were.
1: I was fascinated to read uh, an online piece you wrote reflecting on this encounter you had with these uh, the neighbours who were strangers, in fact. Yes. Because it raises, doesn't it, a cluster of really interesting questions around gratitude, uh, a theme you've thought about a lot in your recent work. At once, our desire to express gratitude when we're the recipients of a great good, like, you know, healthcare. And yet, the pressure to perform gratitude that can turn almost toxic. And and again, the issues with gratitude, there are questions of power and uh, of, of structural justice that might be concealed by, by gratitude. And I mean, the mm. way it raises all those questions is really fascinating to me.
0: Yes, I've been quite fortunate in receiving these grants from an American funder two years ago. And I hadn't thought about gratitude to, so much, either as a personal issue or even as a scholarly issue. But the more I got into this, the more I realised how important and also how complex, really, this issue is. Because on the one hand, most of us think of gratitude as a virtue. And I think on a daily basis, on a personal ethical perspective, I would see it as a virtue as well. We should show gratitude for the good we have. We should show gratitude for the small things. And gratitude is not a passive state of being. But on the other hand, gratitude does lead to structural hierarchies, feelings of indebtedness. And when you demand a gratitude, that is not really gratitude. And yet at the same time, we want to be recognised for the good that we do to others. We want also to show appreciation that when we receive something good. So all these things did come into play. And that, for me, that particular instance of hearing from my neighbours, well, I hope you're clapping as you're walking, almost as if it was a command that you owe I have lots of doctors in my family and I know what some of them have gone through and also the varying stories around what's happening. But the way public debate around these things happen, and and that's when gratitude became really interesting for me, was that it's either right or wrong. And that really leads me to think about some of the deepest questions that we're struggling with now. Can't be polarised into this is right or this is wrong. Uh, People's experience in all of these things really matters
1: you mentioned the grant you received two years ago. You've been thinking about gratitude at least for that amount of time. And I wonder if you had been observing an uptick of interest in those notions of gratitude among both scholars and a wider public, even before the pandemic has brought it to the surface for many of us. What do you think is bringing gratitude into the foreground of our, well, I guess our moral deliberation as societies at the moment?
0: It is interesting because um, during the lockdown I started a series of podcasts as well on the on the topic of gratitude. and it was meant to be initially just a few people who had kind of touched my life or their work had affected or influenced me. But it's now in its eighth or ninth episode and it's uh, run through Edinburgh University living gratefully. And the number of people I've talked to have all said, oh I went back and thought about gratitude and how it's how to think about it in my own life. And when people start reflecting on it, there are some really poignant stories when people say, I wasn't grateful enough to X, Y and Z, or I didn't show enough gratitude to, in in, in the virtue ethic sense of the word. And I think a lot of our lives really are about our relationships and relationships that are built on a, a level of gratitude are, I think, overall much better, less toxic and maybe more meaningful than those that don't have any gratitude in them. We, you know, It's very easy to go through life not showing that you owe anybody anything. I don't think that's a healthy way to live. I don't think it's a moral way to live. So when you ask people to think about gratitude, and especially with current pandemic, and despite things opening up, people still don't feel at ease with where they are. There's a sense that gosh, life really is fragile. We really don't know how to make plans anymore long-term. We really are at the mercy of so many other forces. And I think for that reason alone, a lot more people are thinking about where do you find hope? And gratitude is one of the areas where you find hope.
1: It's certainly, I guess, an antidote to a culture of entitlement or a habit of grievance. And I think we've all seen, whatever our politics where that can lead in at least in political discourse but but as you've suggested and I guess in in the language of virtue there is this idea that that gratitude or thankfulness isn't always easy or necessarily natural to us but actually takes some cultivating and given the podcast conversations you've been having which your guests have been astonishing cornell west <laughs> you've had rowan williams i listened to one just the other day with the young politician from Scotland. Hamza kind of, Youssef. Yes, uh, wonderful, interesting, thoughtful people. What have you heard from your guests about cultivating gratitude and perhaps in, in reflection on your own life too? You're absolutely
0: right, Meredith, that gratitude does need cultivating, that, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I think For a while now, I've been trying to instill in my own children without necessarily thinking about it as gratitude, show appreciation, because that makes you feel good. But that makes the other person feel good. And, And a relationship based on a level of gratitude without sentimentalizing it is always a far better relationship than one that isn't. Because it's very easy to feel that you've been ignored, you've been passed over, that you've not been thought worthy by people who are nearest and dearest to you. And I think in some of my conversations, when people have been invited to think about gratitude, when Cornel West said to me that the moral life is one that has to be based on gratitude, that gratitude is the basis for the moral life and the spiritual life. It sounds very simple, but actually... You have to cultivate that. You have to tell people that gratitude in human relationships, in society, at a political, you know, when our politics is so binary at the moment and our politics can be so toxic, where do we make political space for gratitude, civic space for gratitude? And most of that means that you sacrifice or you give up a little bit of yourself for someone else. All those things I'm sure many people are already doing, but they're not necessarily thinking about it in terms of something that has been cultivated. You know, do we, should we teach our kids these things? Should we cultivate them all almost as an educational moral discipline? I think we should.
1: And yet the need for wisdom around that is so enormous, isn't it? in order to not find yourself in the position of the neighbour yelling out, you should be clapping as you walk, that that tension between fostering gratitude as a genuine virtue and uh, enforcing the, the performance of it, especially in civic ways. Yeah. The other aspect of your recent work on gratitude has involved an academic seminar series uh, at universities in Edinburgh, at Yale, the British University in Dubai, And that series has been particularly concerned, I think, with excavating some of the religious uh, wisdom of the world's faiths in relation to gratitude. And I'm curious about the role you see for religious thought in these contemporary discussions of gratitude. What is it that you see religious understandings of gratitude contributing to this conversation?
0: So Uh, Well, thank you for asking me about those um, conferences or those workshops, which are largely small workshops of invited scholars, either Christian or Muslim. And I've kept it to these two religions, namely for size reasons. Namely, that's because where my real interest is in the comparisons made between these two faiths. But also so many of my closest colleagues and friends, um, either from an Islamic or Christian background. And also because these two are the world's largest faiths. Um, whatever you think of that, that makes for interesting conversations. And one of the things that stood out at the Yale conference was a Christian theologian who said, everything that comes from God is a gift. Again, it sounds very simple, but then how do we all receive everything that comes from God as a gift? And is everything that comes from God a gift, if we think of gift as something good? I mean, that has very radical implications, It's a huge claim. It was a huge claim. And it led to a really interesting conversation. From the Christian side, for me, there is a lot to talk about the gift of life, that what God gives are gifts. From the Islamic side, there's been a lot of scholarship on gratitude as uh, related to patience, to perseverance, to a way of being in life that is always aware of what God has done for you, and that's the good and the bad. And again, I would stress, it's not necessarily about passive acceptance of all that befalls you. Gratitude demands actually that you you strive for justice. It demands that you think about inequality and do something about, about all the social disparities that we face. But on the other hand, there's a sense also that as believers, ultimately, we are in the hands of God, that there is only so much we can control and that what we can control, we have to do the morally right thing with that. And that takes patience, but it also takes courage. So some of these conversations are about going back to scriptural Ways of understanding, historical frameworks, but also contemporary issues. So, at the Dubai conference, and the reason I wanted one of the workshops to be in Dubai, and I, I have a pattern of doing this of trying to get my guests to go to different parts of the world, because when you're in a different part of the world, especially for maybe Americans or Europeans who've never been to any part of the Middle East or South Asia. You think differently, you know, you, you, you smell the air differently, you feel different. And all of that is important in the way you think. One of the uh, theologians there talked about empire, race structures, inequalities in the UK, and why he couldn't understand why his parents were grateful to the British Empire. And, you know, so you go from kind of quite um, theological underpinnings of gratitude to the lived realities of people's lives which is, we're all struggling with this. I don't know whether I should be grateful to my parents for having left South Asia to come to the UK. But most of the time, I am grateful. But would I have had a very different life had I stayed there? Probably. Would it have been better? I'll never know. And again, that makes you realise there are limitations on on us all. There are only so many things we can do or struggle against. But at the same time, the moral underpinning has to be there all the time. How can I make things better in the work and the life that I lead for those around me?
1: You mentioned that some of the deliberation has been around scriptural uh, mm-hmm. discussions of gratitude. Could you just tell me a little bit more about gratitude in Islamic thought, particularly is it a significant theme in the Quran? It
0: is in the sense that be thankful is in in its various iterations, comes up frequently in the Quran. Be thankful, be patient. Those who do good and those who are patient often come as clauses and in verses throughout the Quran. And you have to think, what does it mean to be patient? What does it mean to do good? What does it mean to show gratitude? Does God need our gratitude? If God needs nothing from us, Why should we be thankful? And, you know, you can play around with all these things, because obviously there's a scholarly dimension to this. And there's obviously a lived reality, which is people, most people are encouraged to be grateful. But when you start unpacking all this, it can lead to some very interesting conversations. But I think the overlying emphasis and the way gratitude has developed as a discipline, even as a ritual, I would say, is when you look at the works of many of the theologians of the medieval period, the Sufi masters who cultivated gratitude and patience as a way of their relationship with God, of cementing that relationship, where you are always away, but what comes to you comes from God and you take the good and the bad. You struggle for more good in life, but at the same time, There's a sense that you owe everything to God. I I do think that most of us, what I would call ordinary believers, maybe don't think about gratitude in, in such potent terms. When you look at so much of Islamic culture, almost everything is about saying thanks be to God. You sneeze and you say thank be to God. You enter somebody's house and you may say thank be to God. You kind of say it almost without thinking, but it's there all the time you are invoking a gratitude to God. I'm not necessarily saying that everybody thinks about it in the same way, but there's a whole cultural deliberation and ritualistic deliberation almost on thanking God in most Muslim cultures.
1: Our podcast and broadcast with ABC Radio National, you're listening to Soul Search. I'm Meredith Lake, today in conversation with Mona Siddiqui, Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Her current project explores Christian and Muslim approaches to gratitude, and if you'd like to check out her podcast, Living Gratefully, you'll find a link to it on the Soul Search program page. Mona has some terrific guests, as we've mentioned, so do take a listen. We'll be back with Professor Siddiqui in just a moment. But speaking of podcasts, I'm joined now by the host of one of my favourites, RN's The Minefield. Hello, Scott Stevens. Hi, Emerita. Hi, Thanks so much for that. It's very, well, very lovely to know. Well, thank you for stopping by. Now, With your show, you're in the business, you could say, of diagnosing the moral complications of modern life. Are you seeing any interesting expressions of gratitude just at the moment, or what kind of gratefulness do you think this kind of crisis moment is producing?
2: I actually think that gratitude is a really complicated idea at the moment. I think it's probably fair to say that we saw lots of gratitude in the early days of the pandemic where we were all I think marveling at the selflessness, at the self-sacrifice of many of those healthcare workers and frontline workers who put themselves in harm's way for the sake of people who were struggling to care for themselves or who were recovering from COVID-19. So I think there was that gratitude early on. I think there was also a degree of gratitude that many people were feeling, especially in places like Queensland, uh, that we seem to have dodged the bullet. We've uh, kind of missed this particular Uh, uh, experience that many people around the world and many other cities within Australia are experiencing. I think at the moment, gratitude on both of those fronts is really soured. I think the fact that this is lasting longer than a lot of people thought, the exhaustion has begun to set in. And with that, goes the capacity to feel the kind of gratitude that a lot of people felt early on. And even that gratitude of missing the pandemic, I wonder how much of that wasn't tainted at the beginning by kind of survivor's guilt. And I think in the end, this actually goes for me to what gratitude often is. We often think of gratitude as a kind of spontaneous welling up of thankfulness.
1: As a feeling, as you mentioned.
2: Exactly. I don't think there's much of anything spontaneous about gratitude. I mean, we all have, I think, those moments where we are unbelievably spontaneously grateful at the families we have, the children we have, or the people who lowered themselves to marry us. But gratitude is something that really, like any good moral virtue, it is something that is practiced. It is something that is cultivated. It is something... That's honed and sharpened so that often it kind of drags us up out of a predisposition to despondency rather than something we just sort of wait around for hoping to overtake us
1: it's fascinating to think about these things as virtues when the feeling isn't there. We could think about love, perhaps in the same way. And that's kind of what I would like to talk to you about, because as well as co-host of The Mindfield, you're also the online editor of ABC Religion and Ethics opinion page on the net. And just this week, you've published a piece by none other than Mona Siddiqui that I think explores another one of these themes that We can mistake for a feeling or a singular act, whereas, in fact, it might be something more like a habit or a transformative way of living a whole life. And that's a piece on hospitality. Can you tell me about the the essay?
2: Wow. Where, where to begin? It is an extraordinary piece. It's called Divine Welcome, Hospitality in Christianity and Islam. It really is something because what Mona is doing, I mean, it's, it's one of these pieces that actually demonstrates why she is quite the original and I think rather unique figure that she is because she moves so fluently and so literally across both Christianity and Islam. You allow the difference to show up just what it is that makes these different faith traditions, what gives them their particular register, their fragrance, their power, the ability to sort of stand out from the crowd. It's been one of the signal marks, I think, of her work forever. In this particular piece on hospitality, Uh, she, again, demonstrating this remarkable literacy, uh, she tries to trace the various ways in which you're right. Hospitality isn't a kind of single act where we invite someone around or single act where uh, where we bend beneath ourselves and give someone something that we think they maybe didn't deserve, but we're willing to give it to them anyway. But rather, hospitality... As a kind of practice of life where we open ourselves relentlessly to the stranger, to the other, to something that's going to surprise, something that's going to alarm and awaken us. Because one of the things that she does trace through both Christianity and Islam is that when we open our doors and set our tables for the stranger, ultimately what both religions teach us is that we are opening our doors and setting our tables for the divine And then tracing that through into moral philosophy, debates surrounding refugees, who is welcome, who is not, tracing that through into the way that we think about food as the possibility of being a kind of constant sacrament, not just in the way that we eat on high religious days, but in the way that we try to invite the divine presence around the tables in our houses. It's a remarkable piece that, uh, that well repays the amount of time that it takes to get through it.
1: I was really struck by the way she foregrounded generosity, hospitality as ways of creating relationships that aren't just about what we give, but who we might become. Like that we can live in a way that constantly reminds us of human diversity And not just the stranger, but the traveller, the guest, the neighbour, people who we can encounter in a way that is humbling for us as well.
2: I think you're exactly right, Meredith. And this is where there's a lovely degree, I think, of emotional realism that comes through Mona's piece. You, You and I, I'm sure, both know people who have a tendency to give and give and give and give and kind of take it almost as a mark of spiritual pride that they don't need anything in return.
1: <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, there's a, uh, well, I think what you're getting at is that This is where Mona Siddiqui's work on hospitality and gratitude actually begin to intersect because there's a challenge, isn't there, in not only offering hospitality or being generous, but receiving it, being receptive to the generosity of others, which I guess implies a a humility and perhaps even an indebtedness, a gratefulness that these things kind of cluster together.
2: I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, it even goes a bit deeper than that. It's not just that those who give hospitality need to be prepared to receive it. But I think it's also that in the very act of being hospitable, you are receiving the remarkable gift of the other person. And I think you're, you're right that hospitality, when we think about hospitality properly, not just as the always ever giving out, giving out, giving out, it it is one of those things that by its practice, it engenders gratitude because through the process of being hospitable, you become aware of the extent to which we all live in desperate and in constant, even soul deep need of one another.
1: Scott, if people would like to have a read of Mona Siddiqui's essay on hospitality, how can they do that?
2: Well, the easiest way is to go to abc.net.au forward slash religion. You can just search for ABC Religion and Ethics uh, on your search bar. Uh, It'll be nice and prominent there on the homepage. Or if for some reason you're listening to this a little bit later and it's disappeared from the homepage, you can click on the opinion tab and you can either read Mona Siddiqui's piece or go back through our illustrious back (laughs) catalogue.
1: And we'll also put a shortcut to the article in the Soul Search program notes for today. And thank you, Scott Steve for stopping by to talk about it.
2: anytime, Merida. Thank you.
1: On RN, this is Soul Search. And back to Mona Siddiqui herself now. Many people turn to her for an informed perspective on Islam... She's advised Prime Ministers, the BBC, the World Economic Forum, and she has a wide audience of listeners and readers, not least here in Australia. But Professor Siddiqui says she's a person who happens to be Muslim rather than a Muslim speaker. And, as she explains, that distinction matters.
0: I think today there is so much identity politics around religion and race that you have to be really careful, not necessarily in trying to kind of contrive an identity for yourself, but to be honest and say, yes, I happen to be a British citizen who is also Muslim. As soon as people think that you belong to a particular faith, especially Islam at the moment, they not only pigeonhole you, but they think of you as, well, you must do X, Y, and Z as a Muslim. You must think in this way as a Muslim. And so, so much of your own individuality as a person is almost stripped before you say anything. So for me, each of us is an individual with our own background, you know, whether you have faith or not, with our own education, whether you have education or not, fine. Whatever the differences of background are, All of that shape us. So when we start saying, oh, but she's a Muslim speaker or she's a Muslim this, the Muslim, unfortunately, I think, overrides everything else and not necessarily in a positive way. And I don't want to be seen as somebody who is just speaking from an Islamic perspective because there is no one Islamic perspective as there is no one Christian or Jewish perspective. And I think it is important to make that distinction because there are lots of things that I do or don't do that would be in disagreement with so many other Muslims around me.
1: So it's not about quarantining your faith to one pocket of your life that's unintegrated with the rest of your scholarship and relationships, but it's about maintaining a a complex vision, I guess, of who you are and also the internal diversity of the, the Muslim community. Can I Spot just... On. Can I just hear a little bit more about your particularities then in terms of your upbringing? I know you were born in Karachi in Pakistan, Mm -hmm. but grew up in West Yorkshire in England. I wonder how your parents went about raising you in a home where faith obviously mattered, but the context must have been very different to the one that they themselves had known.
0: We never had a conversation about why they left Karachi to come to Uh, the UK. My father was a psychiatrist. He came over for further postgraduate exams and then they stayed. And I think the main reason they stayed was to give us a better education. But I think they also enjoyed being in the UK. Both my parents read enormously. And I took that for granted, that there were books always in the house everywhere. They read as people who read literature, if I can put it like that. They didn't read to have you know, snobbish or pretentious conversations with people. They read because they enjoyed reading. So I think if I can put it this way, we had lots of intellectual freedoms, but we didn't have many social freedoms. We were raised in a very, I wouldn't say conservative, because that doesn't really mean much nowadays, but we were raised with, you know, this is good about our culture, but this is good about being in the West. And we were allowed to make our own decisions about what we thought. And I think when you are raised with intellectual freedoms, then you can read and think and explore, and you can't put a stop to that. So how you navigate your path in life, you know, the six brothers and sisters, we've all turned out very differently, even though we were raised by the same parents in the same household.
1: You mentioned that your home was full of books and that that was something you took for granted. Was going to university something you took for granted as a young person? I mean, you studied Arabic and French, I believe, and then Middle Eastern That's studies. That's great.
0: Well, my father probably wanted all, us all to be doctors, like every Croatian father. And that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and uh, my mother said to three sisters, three brothers and three sisters, she did say to us one day, it's a very clear memory I still have, I want you to be a doctor, I want you to be a barrister, Barrister, not even lawyer, and I want you to go into the academy. And all three sisters, we did that.
1: Did that but feel like pressure to you, or just was it your it mother like understanding pressure. something about the kind of person you were? You're absolutely right. I think
0: she did. For my mother, education was salvation. Education would open doors. Education would lead you to a, a more prosperous life, if that's the right word. And I think having been denied formal education herself, I think she wanted to live that through her children. But I actually wanted to be a journalist and I also wanted to go into uh, diplomacy. You know, it wasn't till my um, till I started doing my master's and, you know, the, these are the times when one person can have so much effect in your life that it becomes a turning point, that my supervisor at the time, who sadly died at a very young age in his late 40s, The way I developed my relationship with him and the way I then went on to get a scholarship to do a PhD turned my life around.
1: You went on to complete your PhD in classical Islamic law at Manchester University. You mentioned the influence of your master's supervisor, but what drew you to that field of research and what were you hoping to achieve? I mean, this is the late 80s. What was the, I guess, the context in which you took on that project?
0: I wanted to do Arabic in its classical form. I wanted to know more about what Islamic law really means. And I did well in my master's and therefore got the scholarship, but I had no idea what that really meant in terms of further research. And my supervisor, it was just very serendipitous, just said, oh, we've received these books in the library, 16th century, you know, works on Islamic law. Do you want to study this? And that's how it started. And I started looking at issues around family law, marriage and divorce. And of course, when I say law, this is where it all gets very tricky because this is jurisprudence. This is just scholars thinking about an array of issues, personal, civic, family. So there's no you must do this or you must do that. It's so much exploration around ideas, around what it means to think or do things or or have relationships and that was an eye-opener for me you know up till then most of my personal scholarly life was really just either literary or practicing as a muslim as and when i could and not really thinking about it in really scholarly ways and then the academic world the past opens up a whole new horizon for you as to how historically people have had all kinds of views on all kinds of things And I think that's what interested me, because I realized that the whole Islamic tradition, whether you did it theologically or whether you did it based on Islamic law, was based on discursive conversations, conversations that were never meant to stop. And we've lost that in our contemporary settings. We've reduced Islam in a way, at least in the West, to rights and wrongs in our public conversations. And that's where my interest grew, that actually... This whole world was really a world of reflection.
1: I really would like to hear more from you about, I guess, some of the divergences between popular and contemporary understandings of that word law and, I guess, the very textured and even mobile sense of law that you are hinting at just there. It seems to me that in Britain over the last several years, Sharia has become a real focus for anxieties about religious pluralism, about religion in public life. And here too, in Australia, whenever the word Sharia is in the headlines, it's because somebody is alarmed or somebody is objecting to something. And it's often translated quite simply as law. But how would you describe or explain what Sharia is and what it means?
0: It's a really good question. And I think that at a popular level, a lot of Muslims will say, I must do X, Y and Z because this is Sharia. And what they mean by that is this is how God wants me to either pray or enact this ritual or whatever cultural or social issue it might be. But in actual fact, I don't think there is a single Sharia. That's the problem. I mean, it was something that my supervisor said very early on. He said, the queen of sciences in Christianity is theology. The queen of sciences in Islam is law. And what he meant was that, that if God's word was so simple to understand from the Quran, why would we have volumes and volumes and volumes of works which are all trying to explore what does obedience look like? So when I think about where Christianity, and I'm generalizing here, but where it has focused is on doctrine and systematics. Where has Islam focused, it's on how do we show God that we are obedient. And the reason I'm making that contrast is only to say that the doctrine of God is so complex and so rich in Christian theology that although Muslims also talked about the doctrine of God, it because we don't have the Trinity, we don't have the incarnation, we don't have the Holy Spirit in the same way, it is a different focus. As the focus in Islamic thought, despite Islamic theological underpinnings of, you know, how do we talk about God's essence and attributes was really on how do human beings show obedience to God? If I don't pray five times a day, if I only pray one time, what does that mean? If I don't have water for my ablutions, how can I make myself clean? It can be from the most small thing to the largest question. And all of that loosely falls under Sharia. So when people in the West, as you say, whether it's in the UK, United States, Australia, think of Sharia, some of that is precisely because Muslims themselves have reduced Sharia to it's just about right and wrong. And I have to do things in a certain way. And some of it is just not being aware that Sharia is not, you know, just beheadings or amputations or whatever, because those are the things that make headlines. Sharia is all about thinking with all the constraints, with all the limitations, with all the ways that the jurists themselves try to implement for making human life easier, their legal rulings, that it was a conversation that should still carry on. And I say that precisely because Muslims who have migrated to living in Western countries in the last 70, 80 years Are now facing this issue of how do we live? You know, nobody's stopping anyone from praying or fasting or anything like that. Those aren't the things that concern people. What people are concerned by is are Muslims living out a parallel legal system? When they say Sharia, do they have their own ways of thinking about law? And of course, it's most manifest when it comes to marriage and divorce.
1: That's a real area of expertise for you, as you mentioned. And I realise this is a a huge jump and a big question, but could you give us a brief overview of how Sharia is currently recognised in the British legal system?
0: Well, if you think about Sharia as actually ritual, no one is going to stop me from praying. That's Sharia. No one is stopping me from buying halal slaughtered meat. That's Sharia. It doesn't need to be legally recognised. I'm just doing that as part of my faith. The issue is really when something conflicts with the law of the land. So the the Sharia review that I worked for for the Home Office two or three years ago was really looking at, and this is an example of where it does become contentious, when a Muslim couple marries, they are married under the eyes of their own religious law, in the same way that when a Jewish couple marries. But if they don't register their marriage in a civil court or a registry office, that marriage is not recognised. Now, a lot of people still don't register their marriage. And what this review was looking at was, does this mean that when women want to divorce, or even sometimes when men want to divorce, they have no protection? And for me, it became really interesting because it was the intersection of both scholarship and the theory, but also the lived reality of people's lives when they're living Islam as a minority faith in a majority secular or Christian country. We found that a lot of people weren't even aware that their marriage was not recognised if it was an Islamic marriage only. The conclusion was that the government should insist that all couples of whatever religious persuasion, but in this case Muslim, should register their marriage so that women specifically are protected under the eyes of the law if anything goes wrong. The headlines around that, thankfully, most of them were positive. But before and after, the sense was that, oh, Sharia means that Muslims are living a parallel legal system. There is no parallel legal system because nothing that is Sharia is legally recognised, if you see. So it can almost be reduced or seen as ritual.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about how Sharia courts operate as arbitrators in the UK?
0: Well, firstly, they're not courts. That's the first thing that we said in the report. These, they are councils. Councils. They're just, uh, yeah, because if you give them the legitimacy of a court, that's wrong. That, you know, a court is an identified space. It has a legal mandate. Councils are just a voluntary association of people. You know, there's no building necessarily attached to them. There's no space. You could have a Sharia council in your living room. So, the conclusion, one of the conclusions that the review body came to was not to say ban them because we want to have Sharia councils, was because you can't possibly ban something that doesn't have any legal validity in the first place.
1: As I think will be clear, uh, Professor Siddiqui, your expertise in all of this has made you a major contributor to the public discussion of these questions in Britain over the last several years. And I wonder, just in closing, what your reflections are on that experience?
0: I started doing media as soon as I got my first lectureship at the University of Glasgow. Because I was the first woman, the first non-white and the first non-Christian in the divinity school, the local BBC picked it up. And for me, that very first conversation was, oh, I've got something to say. And I didn't think about, oh, I'm a Muslim or I'm a female. I honestly didn't. I just thought, if the media want to hear interesting things and they come to me, I'm going to just speak. And I was never at any point thinking I'm speaking on behalf of Islam or other Muslims. So I always try and say things that, you know, for me personally, or this is one way of thinking, always trying to make the media understand. You know, we're going back almost 25 years, to, that there is a variety of Thinking on every single issue. But I do think my faith has played a really important part. And I say that in the sense of I'm a strong believer that if you do things with the right intention, good things happen. I've never been an apologist for Islam. I hope I haven't. I've never been part of a wider Muslim community. I've never said to other Muslims, you know, do this or think like this. I've allowed my voice to to say things that I think are not only, okay, maybe from me as a Muslim woman at times, me also as a public intellectual, me also as a scholar, but also me as somebody who thinks very carefully that I am living in a society which has given me the freedom to speak about things. We cannot take that for granted. That gives you a huge responsibility on what you say and how you say it. And when you are given a privilege to say something in the public domain, use that wisely.
1: Finally, then, I wonder, given all that we've talked about, how hopeful are you that post-Brexit Britain will emerge from these current trials as a, you know, a gentler, more inclusive and perhaps even more thankful community? Where do you see hints of that right at the moment? I think
0: a lot of people are
1: far more self-reflective at the moment
0: about life. Just in general conversation, I hear it. And I think that we did see a lot of people putting themselves out during the first few weeks at least, just ordinary citizens wanting to do whatever they could because everybody wanted to feel that they could contribute and make something that was so awful slightly better. I'm not sure, though, that people are not in a rush to get back to whatever pre-COVID normality was I think however having said that that, and I include myself in this that there's been some reflection as to how do I want to live the rest of my life things have been very good I've felt very blessed and I this isn't about ingratitude at all but really these three or four months has given me space to think about what more could I do Or what do I not want to do anymore? And these questions can make you feel really restless because there is is no single answer. But I think it's good because it's about self-learning.
1: Mona Siddiqui is Professor of Islamic and Interreligious Studies at the University of Edinburgh and regularly listed among the most influential academics in the UK. She's the chair of the BBC's Religious Advisory Committee in Scotland and she often appears on Radio 4's Thought for the Day. Earlier on, we spoke about her recent work on gratitude. If you missed it, you can catch up with the ABC Listen app. Mona also has a podcast of her own. It's called Living Gratefully, and you can find it by following a link from the Soul Search program page. Next time on the show, the story of Max Weber and sociology's love-hate relationship with religion. This month actually marks 100 years since Weber's death, during the influenza pandemic that followed World War I, in fact. Weber was only 56 at the time, but he'd already thought and written enough to become one of the world's most influential theorists of religion and modernity. And his insights and ideas have helped define its academic study ever since. From the role of Protestantism in the rise of capitalism to the nature of magic, Weber still provokes a lot of debate, so I hope you'll join me next time for a rollicking ride through all of that. And then, looking further ahead, Soul Search will be celebrating Science Week with Oxford mathematician Professor John Lennox. If his name sounds familiar... About a decade or so ago, he publicly debated several of the leading new atheists, including Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Well,
3: the first thing is nobody wants to debate like that anymore. Uh, I don't and the atheists don't. And the conflict method of debate has some advantages, but a huge number of disadvantages that you rapidly learn. And over the years since those early debates, I much prefer, and so do my atheist and agnostic friends, much prefer a moderated discussion. I think that is much more productive. But so it was at the time, and I think they were valuable in the sense that now, 10 years later, I still get letters from people who have moved a long way towards Christianity or become Christians through watching them. And that has encouraged me immensely. And I actually got on very well, which surprises many people, uh, with Christopher Hitchens off stage. But the debates were useful. They focused my mind, of course, enormously because this was the top level of atheism. But they left me with an abiding sense of... uh, and I'm being frank here, of the thinness of the arguments and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of these arguments are are slowly passing into oblivion except among young people who have imbibed them, which means that I find myself having to keep writing and lecturing on this kind of thing to try and explain why these arguments are so insubstantial.
1: It's fascinating that you suggest a generational aspect to the reception of this mode of, I guess, tackling big and, uh, I think for many people, very important questions about what we might believe, what we might take to be true, what kind of foundation we would build a life on, build a community on, for that matter. Because I think you're right that some people are still absolutely absorbed by those debates, and yet I've had other guests on this show for whom a kind of science versus religion, atheist versus Christian stag fight, as it's been called, is not really that relevant to their own spiritual path and experience. And I wonder if there's a sense that you recognize of, of tiredness almost, not just a sense of the, the limits of the mode, but a tiredness with that particular terrain for a conversation about faith and the life of faith today.
3: I think that is true. And it's particularly true when pain and suffering hit, because the business of producing rational answers to arguments is the the life's business of many people, including myself. But life is much bigger than that. And we do not turn to science for questions of meaning. It's very good at answering the how questions and the why questions of function but it doesn't answer the questions of meaning. And people get tired simply if they're bombarded by argument, if they don't see the point. I think human beings are very complex. And sometimes we need answers to big questions, but other times we need to sense that there's someone out there who loves us, who cares for us. Now that, of course, raises other questions. But to me, Uh, The fact that God loves me is even bigger than the fact he created the universe that I study.
1: Oxford University's Professor John Lennox, one of many great guests to look forward to in coming episodes of Soul Search. Why not subscribe to the podcast with the ABC Listen app, and that way you'll make sure to catch them. For now, thanks to Mariam Shahab and Hong Jang for producing Soul Search this week, and to the RN Sound Engineers. I'm Meredith Lake, and it's been great to have your company to explore the world of religion and spirituality right here on RN, your home of ideas.